Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Hello, I'm Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical. Folks, I can think of no better show post-election and as COVID continues to define our 2020 than this week's. My guest this week is drummer Mark Schulman. Mark is the man that the big artists call when they need someone to hold down the beat on tour. Just ask Cher and Pink. As a matter of fact, Pink refers to Mark as Disneyland due to his upbeat nature and high energy. In addition, Mark is also a highly sought after corporate and motivational speaker who is presented to some of the largest organizations in the world. We'll learn why fear and excitement are linked and how a drummer high can get you thinking positively and more creatively. This is a gift to you listeners after a very challenging year. Up next, positivity and light with my guest, Mark Schulman. Hello, Mark Schulman. What's up, my friend, Nick? Or my new friend, Nick, my my your my, old new friend, <laughs> vicarious friend through our dear our, our dear buddy David Ray, who's been talking about both of us to each other for twenty years, and we've never met. After all this time, it's such a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's the same, and I feel like we already have that friendship. It's yeah, very odd. I, I know. <laughs> so, are you in uh, lovely Los Angeles this morning? Yo, I sure am. I actually just gave a speech to a to a, a British company. Very early this morning, but I also have a 10-year-old daughter, so uh, I don't exactly uh, abide by the rock and roll schedule when I have my kid falling asleep before me most nights. I'm just telling the yes. truth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what's, I mean, look, you've been a road guy for a long time. I mean, what's this year like? I mean, how has it changed your life? And I mean, what was planned this, this year for you as far as touring? I mean, where are you at in this pandemic scene? Well, fortunately, we had done the last couple of years of Pink touring, and we had immense success. I mean, she broke sales and attendance records. We did sold-out stadium shows in Europe, uh, and she actually holds the record for being the highest-grossing artist in history in July. I mean, like outgrossing Springsteen and U2 and and the Stones in one month because we were playing to thirty to 100,000 people per night. But we spent the last two and a half years, so this year was our year off anyway. So that worked out. From a timing standpoint, so um, I'm also a what I call an activational speaker. I go to corporations and I use music as a metaphor for top performance. And I play drums and I speak to these big corporations, and I love doing that. So that business has been dramatically affected because let's face it, there are three three areas of business. You got the touring business, the conventions business, and the restaurant business that have been hit the hardest. Um, right. So two, two. Hours. How's your studio business, though? I mean, you have that too, don't you? Are you still I have involved? That. Or I know I have that, and I have been doing sessions, um, but I'm not doing an abundance of sessions. I am still doing that, um, just uh, not as not as much as uh, I'd like to. You know, normally people would call me for sessions, and I've been so busy, I would turn them down. Now I would I would welcome them more, uh, and I'm so I've done my share. But it's never been my stronghold because I've been on the road so much, either speaking or, of course, touring with Pink for the last 13 years. We've been on the road a lot, which is great. And she's amazing. 
What's a cycle like for you guys? Like when she becomes active, like how much of your life does that take? Does it take two years, a year and a half? What's it take for you, for your, well, from your point of view? Let's look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you basically the last few years. So two, 2017, we spent the second half of the year doing some uh, outdoor dates and a lot of promotion because the record came out. 2018, we spent exactly half the year touring, six months. Uh, we did Australia, the States, and Europe. In 2019, we spent another six months touring, but a, and a lot of that was doing stadiums, and we did Rock and Rio, which was one of my bucket lists, because she's a mom first. So rather than doing it all at once, because she's got two kids, she wants her kids to be able to go home and put them back in school, and lead a semblance of, of a great life. I mean, she's an amazing gal from that standpoint. She really takes that in consideration. So six months on, and then six months off. And uh, that's what's enabled me. Like last year, I did 50 speaking gigs and six months of touring. <laughs> so Amazing. it was a fantastic year last year, dude. <laughs> it was brilliant. I, I love can I it. Have your, can I have your airline uh, mileage account, please? Well, I will tell you the truth right now, because of all, I've had so many speaking gigs canceled. I have $27,000 in airline credit. Think Dang. about that. And I can't Dang. get that back. It can only be used as credit. So, you know, and we would love to take vacations, but we're not flying. You know, we're not, you know, we, we've taken a few driving vacations, but we're pretty stringent when it comes to protection for COVID and social distancing. And, you know, we want to be safe and healthy. My wife, right. and my wife and my 10 year old, you know. <laughs> Understood. Understood. So let's go backwards a little bit. You're a Los Angeles native. Yes. I am one of the few entertainment professionals born and raised in Los Angeles. So rare. It's so rare. Right. Which part of the city were you? Did you live in mostly? Dude, I'm a Valley boy. I grew up in Woodland. Really? I grew up in Woodland Hills, Canoga Park, um, and now I've been living in the hills of Culver City. Culver City's got one hill. Culver City was like the original Hollywood, um, and now it's a very desirable area. I mean, it's like 12 minutes from the airport, five minutes from the beach. We love it, and so we have this cool house up on the hill. The internet is not so good, but that's my only complaint about it. Yeah. <laughs> And that area really took off with, you know, Apple being down there oh and Beats, right? Apple Music's there. It's really taking off. HBO, moved, HBO moved in. I mean, the, the biggest issues we have politically now is they want to they build so much that the residents are objecting because they want to build bigger buildings and more parking and blah, blah, blah. And, um, although because of COVID, who knows? People are working at home so much, they may be rethinking their strategy anyway and have half of the employees at home, and that way they're not going to be building the big buildings. I mean, the complexion of our lives is, is forever altered and will continue to be altered even when we get back to whatever form of normal we get back to. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and in your household, were you, I mean, was it a musical household? I mean, were you, I assumed you were trained, right? But not in drums? Is that true? <laughs> well, <laughs> As the story goes, you know, I'm in my 50s. I saw the Beatles when I was two years old on Ed Sullivan, and I saw John and Paul and George, and I was completely transfixed. And then I saw Ringo, and it was like something moved deep inside, you know, that big, beautiful nose and the swaying arms. And then I saw the screaming girls, and even back then, I'm like, I want that. Like, I just knew. Like, drums <laughs> chose me. I, I believe that I had a this wonderful predetermination of what a foreshadowing of my life. Uh, and of course, my mama said, no, you know, drums are too loud. Can't you play a nice instrument like your brother Randy who plays violin? 
So I was at Randy's violin lesson and I saw a big violin in the corner. Turns out it was a cello. So I grew up playing cello. But at five years old, I sat down to the drum set. I just knew what to do. Started getting my, my uncle Ben was my cello teacher. Give me a little drum lesson at the end of every cello lesson. And I'd be, my parents would buy me a snare drum, then a cymbal. Finally, at nine years old, they bought me my first drum set. And I never stopped. I played my first professional gig at 12. From the age of 14 on, every week I was playing. And I, believe it or not, didn't even graduate from college because I quit college after two years, went to Cal State Northridge and just started playing full time. And right. the rest is what did you, history. What was, what was your first professional gig at 12? <laughs> oh, my God. It was the night of my bar mitzvah, if you can believe it. I was more excited about that. It was with a horn band playing like Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears for 50 bucks. And I was more excited about that than anything else. And were these, I mean, was, was that a band composed of people that were 12 years old? Or you're no, saying that you was a the, band composed the, of people. They were all like late teens. It's just the guy that hired me was a friend of the family. And he thought, Marks could play this. He could do this. So he gave me a shot. And then, and then at 14, a guy who's still one of my dear friends, Steve Diamond, decided he wanted to start a band. He was a really good businessman and started somehow just getting weddings and parties and bar mitzvahs. And we would put on tux, you know, that tux, not full tuxes, but tux tops. And, you know, my friends were like, were, you know, delivering pizzas. I was playing drums and making money, playing everything from Bossa Novas to Miles Davis to like Zeppelin. I joke with Foreigner because when I got the Foreigner gig, I, that was the same harmony part I sang in my band when I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So going back to the Beatles as an influence, and you've had this remarkable career that's taking you into many places and venues. How many Beatles have you met? I met Paul and Ringo. And, you know, meeting Ringo, I was speechless. We were actually, I was playing with Richard Marks, his biggest tour, and we were doing promo. We were playing the Arsenio Hall show, and Ringo was the spoken guest. So I met him in the stairwell behind the stage, and I was just like... Ah. I literally couldn't talk. My experience with Paul McCartney was completely different because we played Isle of Wight in England. You know, when they talk about in Spinal Tap, the Isle of Lucy, that was after the Isle of Wight. <laughs> and uh, we were all just staying in this these little motel as the as the dressing rooms. And so uh, Pink, Alicia and her husband were out and in the hallway talking to Paul. And, and Barry Marshall, the promoter who I've been friends with for years and years, knew that I really wanted to meet Paul. Paul was like my guy. So after they were done, you know, Barry's like, hey, Sir Paul, you know, Mark really wants to meet you. And my daughter was like four months old at the time. And I said, you know, Paul, every day in the womb, I sang the song, I Will, to my daughter from the White Album. He's like, oh, mate, that's so touching. And he whips out his phone. He starts showing me photos of his kids. We're just chatting like two blokes. Like, you know, you have the dream where you meet your hero. This was better. We're just chatting completely uninhibited. We talked about the fact that I had played with Rusty Anderson's first band. And he's like, have you seen Rusty yet? And Rusty's a guitar player from their band. I haven't seen him. He said, I'll go in our dressing room and say hi. I said, I'm not going to do that, man. Anyway, (laughs) after 10 minutes of talking to Paul, I was so verklempt, as we say in Yiddish. I was so overwhelmed with emotion. I walked in the dressing room, went in the bathroom, and just started bawling my eyes out. I was just uh-huh. so overwhelmed. And he was the biggest gentleman. So then we played. We're standing there watching them walking out. And Paul looks at me and says, Mark, you got a chance to say hi to Rusty, right? I'm like, uh, yeah, Paul, I did. He's like, what a gentleman. He was everything and more. You know, 
just what an absolute lovely, lovely being. And I've seen every show I can, I can see in the last 20 years, you know? Um, so that was a, that was a dream come true. And and I'm so humble, man. I mean, you know, just like anybody else, I have my, you know, my heroes and, and, and right now a lot of my heroes are the, the great speakers because now I've, you know, entered this, this speaking career and I still feel like I'm, you know, getting better and creating. So I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm still sort of developing. So now I, I try to be friends and talk to as many great speakers as I can. Now they're the rock stars to me, you know? Right. Yeah. And I definitely want to spend some time on that as we kind of progress here. Cause I'm really um, curious about that transition for you and sure. how you've been able to do this and reach kind of the levels you've been able to reach doing that. Um, so you're kind of in these bands as kid, you're making some money, which is great. You're learning all these different styles. Right. And how did you kind of transition then like into more of like a studio cat, like people could really, you know, rely on like this guy is the guy for uh, percussion. Well, I will tell you that I don't think that I've ever looked at myself as a studio cat. I've done my share of sessions, but I look at myself as like the sideman guy. And essentially, I, I moved to Portland with my band. My buddy Dan Reed from the Dan Reed Network, still a good friend of mine, said um, he was already touring. He toured with Bon Jovi. He was friends with the guys in Journey. And you remember Bad English. He's all, hey, man, you know, they, they, they're looking for a young, kind of hot, fresh, virgin drummer, man. You should audition. I'm like, I'm ready. Let's do it. Because I had my own original band in Portland, and I was doing some sessions in Portland. And, and, and that's where I met David, originally David Ray. And so I went to do this audition, and I failed it miserably. I was super nervous. I was rushing. Like, everything went wrong. And I literally went out in the car and I was hitting the steering wheel in tears going, accountant, lawyer, attorney, why didn't I do one of these things? It's too hard. I, I, don't, know, I don't think I could do this. It's, it's too much heartache. But, and that was a definitive moment for me because the moment I was either going to step off the stage, but instead I made a decision and I made two promises. One was that I would, nobody would ever tell me I was speeding up or slowing down unless I want to speed up or slow down no matter the circumstance. The other one was that I was going to transform my fear into confidence. Right. And I did. Mm. So I spent two years working on my internal meter as a drummer. I mean, an internal meter for everybody is critical, but especially for a drummer, we are the foundation. And I work with Tom Mendola from the rhythm course who still teaches. Anybody want to get perfect meter? Talk to Tom <laughs> Mendola. So I did that. And then I became very philosophical. I met the gentleman who's still the mentor in my life who's co-writing my second book, Dr. Jim Samuels. And I got very philosophical and just started really doing a lot of inner work and studying and, and learning about philosophy and about techniques that I could use to better myself and to drive myself not only as a person, but as a musician. And I was also leading my old band and producing. So I learned so much about the importance of what it's like to lead a band and to be a part of a team and not be so drum centric and play every lick I could play every moment. So then I had an original band and we got a demo deal with Atlantic. And I was, I remember I was working at the stereo store, getting calls from Kolodner, feeling like the biggest stud in the world, but the band fell apart. And I said, you know what the hell with that? I'm moving back to LA. I know I can get a gig. And as it turned out, I moved back to LA and a drummer I had known from years before recommended me to go on the road with Brenda Russell. And okay. I got this gig playing with Brenda opening up for Billy Ocean, and 
through Brenda, I met all these different people. And then I, uh, I had also played with this, with this other band uh, called Times Two. They never really did anything, but that got me in the Alan Kovac camp. And then um, I got a call for another gig. And then I told, I had heard through the grapevine that Richard Marks needed a drummer. So I basically talked myself because I was confident. I knew I could do it at that point. I, I told Alan, I said, hey, man, why don't you just contact Richard and give me a shot? I'll tell you what, because he, he told me, he said that Richard's uh, um, going to be doing, uh, my DeRosier was playing drums from Harden. DeRosier's doing one more gig. They're, then they're going to do a little promotional gig for the, the NARM convention. You know that, the Record Merchants Convention. And and he said, look, man, I'm happy to get you an audition with Richard. Just get in line with all the other 20 amazing drummers. And I said, Alan, why don't you let me audition? Why don't you let me do this one little promotional gig? And that'll be my audition. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. You know, I said, I could save you the time and the energy and the money of auditioning all these people. I, I was starting to speak his, I don't know where it was coming from, man. It was like, you know, God in the universe was channeling. He said, you know what? Let me call you back. Calls me back. He said, I talked to Richard. Richard wants to meet you. So I go meet Richard. We get on great. You know, after about 15 minutes, Richard looks me in the eyes. He goes, man, I'm going to give you a shot. We're going to have you play this gig. It was like my dream's coming true. But I set it up, man. I had the balls and the, and the, the willingness to put myself on the line and to get creative in the moment. You know, musicians love to improvise. I was improvising, man. So I played the show. Show went great. And they offered me the tour, and I did Richard's biggest tour. And from that point on, I just started meeting more and more people, and I can tell you many stories. Um, did you? Um, but that that look, you were smart enough to be proactive there, right, and make a suggestion and say, "I'm taking kind of like a little bit more control here, yeah, of my own fate." Um, well, I also I also got the suggestion. You know, I you know Art Ford was a friend of mine, and Art was yes. working up north, and Art also knew Alan, so. Art kind of gave me a, a bit of a suggestion. And I had also met Bobby Columbia because I had played some fusion gigs and he saw me play with, with Jeff Lorber and he was in Richard's ears. So I, a few people knew me and recommended me. So I think that's what put it over, put me over the edge. Didn't mean yeah, to interrupt some, you. Sorry. Those are some good people. So the yeah. great Bobby Columbia, who I love. So, <laughs> the great um, Bobby Columbia. My um, biggest influence, by the way, on drums. Is, is that true? Um, one of my greatest influences ever. I used to try to play along with the blood, sweat, and tears stuff when I was a kid and try to every nuance, you know, try to learn every nuance from him because he was so great. Wow. Yeah, he his office was about four down from mine when I worked at Columbia Records. So I, oh, yeah, right. I got to know Bobby really well. So, um, so I mean, does that, at, at what point, when does it become in your career, at least as a drummer, right? In a sideman, as you like to say, I don't want to call you a studio cat. Um, when does it click where people just come to you now and there's no more auditioning and it's like, I'm the guy, I'm in demand here? Um, never. You know what? That, that never, never happened. happened. You know, I, I, I've definitely been recommended. I've auditioned plenty and I've... I've lost auditions. You realize I'm probably, I probably, if you look at the Guinness Book of World Records for the person who's auditioned for Cher the most, I auditioned three times for Cher, dude. I got it the third <laughs> time. The first time I got it for a minute and the old drummer showed up and they gave him the gig back. Second time I was in the top four. I hired another guy, fired him, gave it back to the old drummer. Finally, the third time I auditioned and I got it. And that was her biggest tour, the Believe Tour. And I played with Cher all the way up to 2014. Cause Cher, I got the pink gig. 
because of Cher's manager, Roger Davies, because um, her drummer wasn't uh, was going to miss two weeks of gigs. And so I came in and I played those gigs with Pink and it worked out so well, they ended up offering me <laughs> the gig. But I auditioned for Foreigner. I auditioned for Stevie Nicks. I auditioned for uh, who else? Um, I don't remember who else. But there are auditions well, I did like the get. Simple Minds thing early, right? Well, sim- right. well the Simple Minds story was yet another story of me being proactive. Because I auditioned for Foreigner. And then I get a call from my buddy, Mark Brown, the bass player, who's, who's remember Conway Studios way back in the day? Yes. You know, he's like, I, I got it. I got the gig with Foreign. I didn't hear back from him for a month. And and then uh, Mark Brown says, you know, I was I was cutting some tracks at Conway and Foreigner was was tracking next door. Why aren't you playing with him? I'm like, I sure as hell am. So I called up um, Mick Jones's brother, Kevin Jones, who was like the assistant manager and the tour manager. I said, Kevin, it's Mark Shulman. What the hell's going on? How come I'm not playing? He goes, well, Keith Forsey is producing and Keith uses Tal Bergman because he's comfortable with Tal, and he just didn't want to chance it because he doesn't know you. I said, "Fair enough, I get it. I, I Tal's great. I, Tal's a friend of mine. Can I have Keith's number? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I called Keith, handshaking, arm handshaking, but I still called him. It's not like it's like, oh, I'm all Mister Confident. I'm scared shitless, but I'm still making the calls. And I left Keith a message. I said, Keith, it's Mark Shulman. I'm the guy that actually got the four hundred gig." I appreciate you use Tal. Tal is great. But listen, man, if you're ever in a bind, you ever want to try somebody new, I would appreciate just the opportunity to play one thing with you. I'll be damned. Three months later, I get a call from, you know, Keith Force. He's really hyper British, man. He leaves, leaves me. I get a page. And I call him back. He's like, I call him back. He's like, Mark, it's Keith. Listen, I'm in the studio. I'm stranded. Tal can't play. I'm, I'm doing a track for Beverly Hills Cop 3 um, for the point assistance. Can you come down and play? I said, you bet your ass. So it just so happens the track was remember New Jack Swing, you know, Duke, 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 yep. Duke, Duke, yep. but yep. they wanted real drums. Well, I could slam that shit. So I charted it out, went in, played it one take. Keith came out, hugged me. From that point on, I was Keith's guy. Now, if you know about Keith Forsey, Keith was a guy that wrote and produced, co wrote and produced all the stuff for Billy Idol. He wrote don't, and produced Don't You Forget About Me for Simple Minds. Well, that's how I ended up hooking up with Billy Idol and Simple Minds. I played with Billy for eight years because Keith recommended that I play on the end title theme for the movie Speed. And we got on and Billy's drummer was in rehab and I spent the next eight, eight years on and off with Billy. And Simple Minds, the same thing. Keith called me again because, you know, remember, uh, uh, Don't You Forget About Me was the only song they didn't write. Keith wrote it. Um, interesting fact, if you think about Don't You Forget About Me, who do you think it was written for originally? I don't know. Who Billy, was it written Billy for? Billy Idol. Think about okay. it. Okay. It's very low. And yeah, when yep, Billy yep. turned it down, he called Simple Minds and Jim Care had this had the same voice. So, you know, fast forward ten years later, he's doing another track for a movie. That was for Breakfast Club, and that blew up Simple Minds. Now he's doing the Mario Brothers movie and some and he wants Simple Minds to do another track. And he calls me to play drums and he says, bring any bass player you want. So I brought my buddy, Mark Brown. So one song turned into a whole album and I ended up leaving Foreigner to go on the road with Simple Minds because I'd been out with Foreigner so much. It's time for a change. So, but it's all because of being proactive, of recognizing opportunities and acting on them. Because most musicians, 
really expect to be either expect to be discovered or unwilling or too afraid to make the calls. And I'm never, you know, my, my thing is like, if I see an opportunity, I may be scared shitless when I make the suggestion to Alan Kovac, who Alan Kovac's a pretty, let's say he's a pretty volatile guy. So, you know, I, he could have like said, how dare you? You got nerve. I invited you in here to play with somebody else. And now you're telling me, Richard Mars, get out of my office. You know, I was half expecting that. But I thought, you know, man, I got to go for it. I got to be honest, because if I don't, you know, my my biggest real fear is missed opportunities. What am I missing? What am what did I miss? Because I didn't take advantage or I didn't hear about it. I've literally stayed awake at night worrying about that. Not anymore, luckily, but there were times I go, what else can I do? What am I missing? Who can I contact? You know, I missed the first batch of Stevie Nicks auditions. I didn't hear about him. I was so upset. How could I not hear about it? I'm so well connected. But then the second batch I heard about from my dear friend, Greg Bissonette, who's a drummer who couldn't do it. And he said, you know, Stevie's auditioning again. You should get yourself in there. So you're damn straight. I did. Called everybody I could do. Got myself the audition. Sure enough, got the gig. But I needed to really do a lot of fishing with a lot of persistence, you know, and, and belief in myself. You know, you get the shot. You know, you have to have I wrote my first book on the three C's. It's called Conquering Life Stage Fright, Clarity, Capability, Confidence, right? You need to have a real clear vision on that goal, man. Super clear. What exactly do you want? And then you need to develop that capability, really develop it. That's why when I fell short on that bad English audition, I was either going to quit or I was going to really know that I needed to nail what I wasn't good at. So I developed the capability and that's what leads to real confidence because fake confidence can be the biggest destroyer. So when Keith called me in and I happened to nail that track, I was put on the spot because, you know, we get that one shot, right? You get the one shot to show you're capable of doing it. If you fuck up that shot, that's it. You're done. You know, that could be the end of it for you. Or you might talk yourself into something else later on. Like with bad English, I fucked up that. But fortunately, I went back to the drawing board. And when I did get the next shot with Brenda Russell, I didn't have to audition. I just needed to keep the gig. So which meant I needed to be. And Brenda was R&B. And here I am, this white kid with long, blonde surfer hair, all tan. You know, it's mostly African-Americans in the band. They're kind of like, who's this guy? But man, I could play I could play the shit out of funk. I learned it. I, I did my homework. I learned my different styles. And and that, you know, you draw on everything you are. You draw on every experience. Every experience you've ever had creates the hybrid of the being and the, and what you have to offer the, the world. Right. So we've determined now that you had your hustle down um, and you were had perseverance <laughs> for right. sure. Um, you know, when you go into some of these situations now, as your career has kind of grown and you have a reputation, you know, you end up with Cher for like the first time. I mean, is that intimidating to have to kind of be jettisoned into something like that? Um, <laughs> Here's the irony of that, a little truth. We, I finally got that gig and, and I knew some of the guys in the band. It was a big love fest. It was great. You know, like the bass player, Don Boyette was one of my dear friends. Paul Berkovich was one of my dear friends. And I just, and then Daryl and Dave became good friends. But, but we, we waited two weeks for Cher to show up. It's like, she's finally going to come. She's finally going to come in. We've rehearsed it. And like, she's here, she's here. And all of a sudden she never, she's not there. 
And the irony was she was so nervous to meet all of us. She never she never made it. She turned back around and went home because she was nervous. <laughs> she's such an awesome lady because she's so humble. You know, when 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 she would, you know, sometimes she would forget lyrics. She had a teleprompter. We all, you know, make mistakes. Um, and she would love it when any of us made mistakes. It was so polar opposite than you would think most most artists are. I've heard all these horror stories of artists, you know, going back to James Brown, flashing in the hands, fining anytime you'd make a mistake. She would laugh and love it when we made a mistake. It would make her feel better because then she felt like, oh, I'm not the only one that might forget a lyric sometimes or forget a dance step. She's such a lovely lady and, and, and so, you know, compassionate and just the opposite of what you would think a diva would be. Yeah, that's awesome. And you did, did you do some of the, uh, did she do Vegas work too? I mean, did you yeah, do like I did, I did there one with of, her? I did the first diva residency with her. And, and it was 2008, yeah, because Lisa and I had gotten married. And I did three months in Vegas. Um, and Lisa, my wife is Swedish. She'd never been to Vegas. We're driving into Vegas. She's all excited after about an hour. She's like, oh, dear. So every week, the moment we, we would do the gig, we we play from 7.30 to 9. Uh, Sunday after Sunday night, we had two days off. I we, I wouldn't even shower. We'd be on the road at 9.15 and drive right back to LA so we could spend the days off in LA and not in Vegas. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so we weren't, weren't big Vegas fans. Yeah. And so, I mean, your life, I mean, versus a person who's like a, let's say a, a typical band, right. Where it's shared, we're all in this together. Um, yeah. you know, when you're, when you're kind of a sideman or a brought into something where it's a solo artist, I mean, it's a pretty good life, right? I mean, you got don't have to really do the press load. Um, back in the day, you don't have to do the radio visits at seven or eight in the morning. Yeah, um, you have a pretty. It's a. It's a. It's not too bad, right? It's an amazing life, and I I'm grateful for it every single day. When I look at the rigors, I mean, I will start by telling you that I figured out years ago one of the ways of of, of creating humility, which is very important to me and keep myself in check that I'm in the service business. Everything I do is really truly to be of service to others. I'm there to be of service to Pink. I'm there to be of service to the band. I'm there to be of service to the audience and the crew. And I started to realize, I started getting humbled by the crew. We have 225 people. The riggers are working 16 hour a day. The riggers are the ones that are like life-threatening situations, climbing, hanging the PA, the lights, the aerial stuff. These guys have a serious job. You know, I get up in the morning, I go to breakfast, I work out, we leave around two, we get there around three, we have an hour to just, you know, putz around, we sound check about 4.30 with the band for 15 minutes, the boss comes on, we sound check with her, we do the little rig check, I'm off, I eat dinner, I usually take a nap, me and Jason, the keyboard player, we always joke that we sleep together, because we're always napping before, <laughs> and then I need to be spot on and completely on my game for that hour and a half or two hours. I'm there for that. And so I play every single note like my life depends on it. I got that from Billy Idol. He said that once. He said, you know, man, I used to go on stage. I'd sing every single note like my life depended on it. And I never thought about, never forgot about that. I thought, you know what, man, that's how I want to be and that's how I want people to feel about my playing and that really is the way I do it I pay attention to every little nuance and that way 
I attach a sense of purpose to every note. And with the purpose, I, the purpose creates more passion because passion dies quickly when you played so what 800 freaking times. So I need to be in touch with my purpose. And I just find my, my purpose renewed constantly because I'm paying attention to the joy and the purpose attached to every note. And I'm always, I'm one of the most grateful people on the planet. Every night when I'm on that stage, when the when they're playing a a uh, film, I always think of one person and one thing about that person for which I'm grateful. And it actually gooses my energy. I can feel my energy rise. It makes us rock even harder. It makes me just, you know, I, I have a, these are, I have a lot of techniques that I use to keep myself fresh, to keep myself humble, and to keep myself the best I can be to be of service to everybody around me. Because the way that I look at it, man, if everybody's taken care of, I'm not a high maintenance guy. Even with my wife, man, I'd much rather be happy than right. So I don't battle her. You know, if we have discrepancies, you know, and I, 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 Take responsibility. I take culpabil culpability for any challenges or anything that I might have created, and I fix it. I fix any harms I've caused. I communicate. I'm the f I will always do that. It's part of my makeup, but it's also something I realized it really works. If you want to be a part of a band, being in a band is like having five, five relationships. Everybody wants to talk. If you're the one that wants to listen, if you're the one that's compassionate, if you have extra extra sensitivity for others. And being a drummer, I feel like I'm the shepherd. So like we're all getting on the bus. I let everybody go on first. Kind of, you know, I just feel like it's my responsibility to 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 help really take care and, and be as cool and supportive as I can. I mean shit, my nickname from 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 Pink is Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. You know? <laughs> I gotta live up to that shit every day, man. I you know, I don't take that lightly. No. Right. And how have, look, that 90 minutes is important and it's important you're present. And I mean, how have you honed that? I mean, do you meditate? I mean, what has like made you become really good at being focused and in that moment for 90 minutes straight? Well, when I drift, I do exactly what I said. I just pull myself back. We all drift, but I pull myself back to being present, to being grateful and to being of service and to paying extreme attention to even the simplest beats. You know, let's face it, I'm chopping wood. It, it, ain't, it ain't rocket science playing these pop these pop gigs. But if you are relishing every beat and attaching purpose and passion to every beat, that you create you have more fun and you have and you and you are putting that fun out there. And so that's what I do. I just pull myself back. And I do meditate, by the way. I have a morning ritual that I do every morning. There's a lot, I pay a lot of attention to all these little nuances and all these details to keep myself interested, to keep myself appreciative. Um, you know, gratitude is one of the biggest components of my life. As I said, I'm so grateful. So I will remind myself in the middle of a song, I'll just be grateful for the littlest thing. I'll look at Pink and I'll see her up there like risking her life and I'll be so grateful that she's like like so committed. And also another thing, when you're working with an artist who's such a badass, dude, it's humbling. So I never for one minute think that anything that I'm doing is one tenth as intense as what she's doing. I'm just so grateful to be there, you know? And they and they can raise your game, right? When you're around, you know, 
the major leagues like that with the real artists. They definitely make everyone kind of rise yeah. with them. Yeah, so, yeah, of course. And yeah. it's inspiring, man. And that's what I'm there to do. I'm there to be of service to her. I got to make sure that she's taken care of. So how dare I think that I can stray and phone it in? There's no freaking way, man. I told you every, you know, every note matters. So I treat it that way. Yeah, tickets are too expensive <laughs> for the audience. <laughs> I know. See a show, right? so right. Um, so I kind of want to segue a little bit into you know what you're currently doing, some of the books you've written, and um, you know how you transitioned here. I mean, and I don't know if you know. In my, I'm just presuming. I was thinking through maybe some of the drum clinics that you started doing that maybe this led you kind of more into the path um, as corporate. Do you call yourself an activator versus a motivator? Is that you're, what you said? You're very intuitive, my young friend. That's exactly what it was. I did a thousand drum clinics in my day. And one day, uh, this amazing clinician, we were doing a, cl- a clinic tour, this guy named Dom Famularo, who we consider the ambassador of drumming. He was telling me how he did a clinic and he was invited to do a motivational speech just doing what he did with his clinic. And they offered to pay him $7,000. And we were making 500 bucks a clinic. And he was like, uh, yeah, okay. And he wrote a motivational book, and I thought I could do that. I could figure out a way because I found out that people were resonating more with my stories and the success secrets they would learn from the stories. Why was I up there, and why are they not up there? They want to know that. And so I realized, you know, I could transfer, basically, take my drum clinic and transfer it to the corporate world if I learn a lot more about their needs and their wants. First, I started with a collegiate world. I went and did a bunch of colleges and had success. And then I studied with two speaking coaches, an acting coach, a director, a storyteller. I honed my craft to make it corporate friendly, but I still do what I do. The irony is the first gig I ever did, I wore a suit. And I realized, they don't want the suit, man. They want the rocker. And, you know, at first at first I was like, you know, I I hated using the term rock star because I thought ad nauseum, everybody's rock star, this and rock star, that. And then I woke up one day and I said, you know what? I really have lived that life. I should capitalize on that. And I started to really be free to really talk about the rock components and even in the title of my of my sort of uh, flagship speech is called Hacking the Rockstar Attitude. But that is what it's about. And the new book is on the power of attitude. I'm co-writing it with Dr. Jim, the guy I met in Portland, because he's so brilliant and these concepts are so great. And the truth is, and this is what I haven't said, is, and so I, I realized after many, many years of sort of learning about the importance of attitude and learning this formula from Dr. Jim, that this is some powerful stuff that can, that can relate. So I spoke on conquering life, stage fight, and the three C's, the clarity, capability, co- co- uh, confidence. And that's and that your was, first book, too, isn't my it? First that's book. the title? Yeah. Right. And okay. I still speak on that if people want to. I have three speeches. I also do, um, you know, increasing or increasing your RQ, your rock star quotient, you know, because you have IQ and EQ intelligence, you know, emotional intelligence. Um, an emotional quotient. So I, I figured I could capitalize on that. But what I do 90% time is talk about the power of attitude. And I'll be very, very quick, but I'll just give you the, the, the nuts and bolts of it. The fact is we can't control what happens to us most of the time as evidenced by this pandemic, but you always have the power to change 
shift or control your attitude about what happens to you. Now think about that because it puts the power back in your hand. And attitude is really critical because it's our viewpoint where we're looking from, right? It's like our vantage point or our disadvantage point, depending upon the attitude that we can choose. And you can choose that attitude in a moment. And when I give my speech, I talk about a bunch of different attitudes that I choose. One is gratitude. One is the power of smiling. Um, and um, those are examples. But what is so fascinating about attitude is that your attitude is actually what drives your behavior. And think about the power in that. So by shifting your attitude, you're shifting your behavior. And your behavior is what determines the consequences of your life. And I realized that this is a formula, A times B equals C. And I utilize that every single day in my life. So I know that if I stop and create conscious attitude shifts, I can then drive more desirable behavior or specific behavior that's going to produce consequences. And if you look at any of the stories that I tell, it has to do with the attitude that I chose at the time. The Alan Kovac story. I could have just said, oh, thank you for letting me be here. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for the audition. Wow, this is amazing. You're going to let me audition for Richard Marks. But I had an attitude of there's got to be more. I know I can dig deeper. I know I can create behavior, create an action. So wait a minute. What if I offer to play that gig? You know, that was all based on the attitude that I had selected consciously at the time or the attitude of, of saying that I was, you know, getting Keith Forsey's number and knowing that, well, I've got this attitude, even though I'm scared shitless to get him on the phone, I'm going to bust through the fear. By the way, the chemistry for fear and excitement in the body are identical. It's just our perception and our projection of that chemistry that determines our experiences. I'm not talking about like, Fear when you step in front of a bus or somebody holding a gun to your head, but the fear and anxiety that we recreate in our heads can be shifted into excitement because so many of the things we're afraid of or we have the fear about, like making the calls or contacting these people, are actually the things that we're truly excited about. So these are attitude shifts producing different behavior and, in my case, producing a whole career of consequences. Right. And so... You know, when you speak to these organizations and you speak to really large corporations, I've seen some of your clients, um, you know, an attitude is kind of a personal thing, right? This is my bubble. I can control some things here. How does that, in context with a large corporation, what, what is your kind of message there? Is it kind of from being a drummer and really you're the leader, but you can't really be the leader? You know what I'm saying, kind of, but you kind of are. So is there like a team thing that comes out of it or... Uh, well, collaborative well, message. Yes. Well, I actually do inter some interactions and I, I, I challenge them to take some action steps. I also tell a couple of very powerful stories. One about Pink when she almost died in, in 2010 in Berlin when one of her carabiner clips on the side wasn't clipped in when she was doing So What? And I talk about how she created this immediate attitude shift on stage that shocked everybody. I tell the story of Tony Shea, the CEO for Zappos, who's a friend of mine who I've interviewed yep. twice, and talk about how he had created an immediate attitude shift when he was a kid, when he was petrified of going on this scary ride, and he reframed it, and it was essentially an attitude shift. So I back up what I talk about, and then I, and then I give the audience, I tell stories and give the audience three immediate attitude shifts. The attitude shift of smiling, if you smile, 
first I said it might be fake, but when you smile, you're actually activating hundreds of muscles in your face that literally tell you, give your body a signal to relax and send endorphins to your brain. Even Malcolm Gladwell in his book Bliss uh, talked about this group of doctors that did a study where they determined that your your you know your your emotions affect your facial expressions, but your facial expressions can affect your emotions. So then I have everybody smile, and I talk about how I was when I was going in for an endoscopy, how I not only smiled but I gave out this big hey! like right in the middle of the freaking little operating room, and I have the audience do that. In other words, I take them through my stories. I take them through the experiences. I tell them about pink. I talk to them about how they can shift. This is a big one, shifting your have-tos to get-tos. Right. If you apply that to anything in your life, it's so simple and so powerful. And I do that every single day from making my bed to giving a speech to paying my bills. I don't have to. I get to. Even my freaking taxes. At one point, I realized, wow. I don't have to do my taxes. I get to do my taxes because then I get to see all the money that I made, or at least get to prep them for my for my my uh, accountant. And it takes even some of the most mundane things and shifts your experience in your life. And also, you know, a, a have to feels like a chore. A get to feels like a choice. A have to feels like you're the effect. A get to feels like you're the cause. And all of us want to be the cause of what we want rather than the effect of what we do not want. And that reframe in the brain can change your experience, change your behavior, change the outcomes. So these are the simple but poignant things that I talk about. And they're all just from my experience. I don't claim to know any more than I do. I just talk about my experience. <laughs> and, and then I well, play and, drums and I demonstrate well, uh you know, and you've you've practiced what you're talking about, and right. it works. So I even talk about like that. You know, one of the components of of drumming and with musicians, what we know is it's not what it's not what we play, it's how we play it. Then I demonstrate it on drums. I play an example of a beat of what I play. Then I play an example of how I play it, and you see and feel all the energy. And then I go, "What drummer would you hire for your band? Drummer number one or drummer number two?" Let us say, if you hire, if you would hire drummer number one, you're watching the wrong presentation. And what drummer do you think that Pink, Stevie Nicks, Cheryl Crow, Simple Minds hired for their band? Drummer number one or drummer number two? Drummer number two, of course. You know. So, in other right. words, I it, it it becomes this interactive, high energy, rock and roll experience. But they can walk away with these absolutely immediately applicable and usable bits of content, and. I, I, I've built this whole business and I practice it every day. I practice my speech, my, my foundational speech nearly every day. I get on the treadmill and I run three miles or more and I practice my speech. I, I hone my skills. I'm always thinking of new ways. I'm always listening to inspiring speakers and listening to inspiring podcasts and reading books. I'm reading Malcolm Gladwell's new book now. And I'm just always wanting to learn and figure out ways of, trends and how I can apply and then what I can do and how I can take what I do and apply it to COVID and, you know, all these different kind of ways of doing things. Cool. Well, look, we're getting close to wrapping here. Cool. Um, I kind of want to uh, ask you a question around music again. Um, cool. And that's simply, I mean, I, look, you've grown so much as a human and your curiosities have probably shifted now as you get in your fifties and 
you know, we all take on different interests, but I was just curious, what are you listening to musically right now? Is there anything great that you're hearing? Mm, anything great that I'm hearing? Um, I'm waiting for the new Struts record to come out. <laughs> mm. I'm a big fan of the Struts. I've actually met them. I think that they're like one of the coolest real rock bands. They remind me of the 70s with their audacity and their glam. Um, I'm always kind of going back to old, you know, my old jazz fusion favorites. I'm listening to just great songwriting. I might throw on Elton John. I might throw on like, you know, the Beatles. I might throw on... Um, uh, I like Panic at the Disco because I love uh, Brendan Urie's voice so much. And I just, I think they've yeah, got yeah. an audacity too that's really cool. But, you know, look, man, I'm always looking for something new and inspiring. I have not had that much inspiration for new stuff. I mean, you know, my daughter listens to every girl singer, you know, Dove Cameron and, uh, you know, Selena Gomez. So I listen to that stuff a lot. I always try to find what I like and try to find what's working. I actually like Dove Cameron, I think she's got some cool stuff. Um, Taylor Swift's new record is brilliant. It's incredible. Who would, who would have known? What a great body of work. You know, it's wild. And even you hear it coming from me, it's like, who would have thought? You know? Yeah. But I, I try to I gain. I haven't listened to it know, yet, but I've heard that. Yeah. I mean, I try to gain inspiration from everything rather than. I've always been the, guy, the kind of guy that tries to find out what I can learn and what I can like as opposed to what I don't like. Like I've never been a big rap fan, but I listen to the phrasing of some of these rappers, and I go, that's like a freaking drum solo, man. These guys are great. I can learn from this. Yep. And I've actually produced some rap tracks and made beats and all that stuff. So, you know, I like to keep myself it. fresh. It's good. It's good. So um, uh, when does the second book you think you'll have that finished? Good question. We're in the middle of it. We're going to work with the same editor we worked with on my last book, Jesse States. We just had a meeting with her. I've got my buddy Mike's going to be the graphic designer. I, I don't know because I don't know if we're going to self-publish or go with a publisher yet. Uh, I've got uh, Shannon Marvin from Dupree Miller as my book agent. We're going to see what kind of offers we get. If we can get with a big publisher, we'll go with it. If not, we'll self-publish. So I would like okay. to say, you know, maybe four months we'll be ready to rock and roll. All right. So you'll come back when that's ready um, oh, yeah. for anyone wanting to find Mark and kind of see what he's up to, especially any of my audience that's with a brand or any of that type of stuff. I will put his information up on our website and you awesome. will have easy access to it. And Mark, um, I can't thank you enough for doing this. It's inspirational. I love the transitions in your life and I love you being aware enough of knowing things that should be happening in your life. Um, that means Friday. a lot. So, and uh, stay healthy. And again, I'm really grateful. Thank you, you too. for doing And brother, thank you for great questions. You're a great, great interviewer. So I'm thankful for that. I try I to be a you better listener. Be. I'm a well, better listener is what I'm trying to attain. Well, that's part so. of being a great interviewer, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. All right, my friend, have a super day. Thank you. Cheers, man. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Um, theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week. Till next week.